You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Morning. This morning, our scripture reading is Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. One of them, out of one of them, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me 
and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Hey, that's hard to read, okay, because this is some pretty strange stuff. So thank you, Don. You did a great job. And like Daniel at the end there, who just did not understand what in the world he saw, Neither do we. So we're going to get into it today and try to dig in and understand it. So uh, I'm Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my uh, honor to typically preach God's Word when we gather on Sundays, and so I'm excited to do just that. Before we get into it, though, I want to make sure I gave a few announcements, okay? Just a reminder, we have men's retreat coming up in two weeks. That's October 7th through 8th. So gentlemen, be there, be square, okay? It's going to be a great time. We're going to dig into biblical manhood and study that together, so you don't want to miss that. Ladies, your retreat is October 5th through 7th? Did I say October? I meant November. November what? 4th through 6th. So this is going to be a great time, so you don't want to miss out. Definitely uh, sign up for those, get involved in those. And lastly, we have small groups that meet during the week on Wednesday and Thursday nights all throughout the county. And so if you're here and you're new and you want to get plugged in, uh, ask whoever brought you or invited you or whoever's next to you where they go or, or uh, where other small groups are at, and we can direct you to those places. So I just want to make sure to send those things your way, okay? So Daniel chapter 8, we are still going through this prophetic portion of Daniel. It's going to be prophetic all the way up till the end. Remember, the first half of the book is the story of Daniel, how he was made in exile, deported from his homeland of Judah, and he is an alien and a stranger in this place called Babylon. He is this remarkable person who entrusts himself to God, uh, lives with excellence, occupies his place in this empire. He doesn't retreat. He doesn't compromise. He stands and is a faithful witness for God, even as a stranger or an alien, an exile in this wicked kingdom. And so we are... uh, Closing that part of the book, though, and moving on into the prophetic portions where there's all these symbols and numbers and imagery, and it's all cryptic and mysterious. My goal today, at least one of my goals today, is to show you that these images and numbers and 
pictures that seem so mysterious don't have to be so hard to figure out. What I want to show you today is that the Bible gives us all of the material, all the content we need to interpret these things rightly. Like we're not left up to our own uh, minds and our own imagination to just take things from history or take present events, current events, and assign them to things in this book or things in these images and numbers. The Bible tells us exactly what these things are. So we're not left to our own. I want to show you that reading prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature, doesn't have to be uh, intimidating. It definitely is challenging, but if you know your Bible, you can do it, and it can be beneficial to you, and it can be helpful to you. That's one of my uh, aims today. My other aim is this, to show you, this is really God's aim for us, these, these original readers and us today, there is a reality behind the reality. There is uh, um, a reality that we don't observe that we can't detect, but God wants us to know that there really is a reality, this battle between good and evil, and it's insidious, it's timeless, and it's already over. That's what God wants us to know. There's this battle raging between good and evil. It's insidious. You wouldn't be able to detect it. It's happening, but you can't observe it, and it's been going on forever, but it's already over. So my method today as we walk through this large portion of Scripture, is to teach a lot. Today is going to be very teaching heavy. And I've warned you guys that over the last few weeks to prepare yourself for that. It's going to be a lot of information. But listen, we are called to worship God, not just with our emotions and not just with experience, but with our minds as well with our whole entire being. So we want to strive after God and pursue Him and know Him, not just experientially with our emotions, but also with our minds. And listen, this is really, really, really important because your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. And so you need to know what Scripture says. You need to know what God says if you want to know him at a deep and profound level. So let's not be intimidated by how intellectual this might seem. It's good for us to pursue God with our minds so that we can love him with our hearts. So with that said, there's this reality, battle between good and evil. It's insidious, it's timeless, it's already over. That's what's ahead of us today. Let's go ahead and pause and pray and ask God to be with us today. God, We come before you as your disciples today. We are your students. And we pray and ask God that you would teach us. We need your help. We need your help to persevere. We need your help to be faithful. We need your help to be steadfast. We need your help to not complain and grumble. We need your help to not become cynical. We need your help, Lord, to remain hopeful. God, we need you, and so teach us, I pray, Father, our great teacher, teach us by your word through your spirit. I pray that you would press down into our imagination and into our hearts the reality of who you are and the reality of who we're up against. God, I pray that also you would press down into our hearts and minds the confidence in you that, Lord, you've already won. That's already over. That through your son Jesus, who died an atoning death in our place, God, we know that the story's already been written. And so, God, we cling to you and hope in you. Teach us, Lord, we pray. And I pray, God, that we would leave here, all of us who have confessed that Jesus is the Lord, that we leave here today more triumphant and equipped 
to face whatever may come our way from our great enemy, trusting in you, holding fast to you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. By the way, check out this cool pulpit. We got a new pulpit. It's perfect for Daniel chapter 8. We're going to do some teaching, all right? So, the battle between good and evil. One, it is insidious, all right? So I'm not going to go over the first several verses of Daniel chapter 8, but what we see in those first uh, two paragraphs there is what? We, this vision of a ram and a goat. This ram represents, we saw, Media, Persia. Not only does this chapter literally tell us that as the angel interprets the vision to Daniel, but we're also given clues in the text, like with the words there, that show us that this is in fact Media, Persia. Uh, the horn, it says, on this ram is raised up higher on on one side than the other, which references how the Persian Empire was the stronger of the two in this mixed empire. But also, this is really important as we understand how to read prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature. Uh, In chapter 7, last week we saw that there's this bear, and this bear was raised up on one side. Remember that? And the bear represents Media Persia. These different um, visions Daniel gets throughout the book, they're not visions of different things. They're visions of the same thing said in different ways. And so Daniel saw in chapter 7 a bear raised up on one side. Now he sees here a ram with one horn raised up, on, raised up higher than the other. So the first kingdom here is Media Persia. Then we have the goat, which, of course, represents Greece. We're told that specifically in the interpretation portion. But also... We are given clues to make it obvious. The goat became, it says, exceedingly great, but then was broken. And then four horns appeared in its place. So this, of course, refers to Alexander the Great and his conquest and death and then division of his empire to the four generals underneath him. Further, again, beyond chapter 7, Greece is pictured as a leopard which has four wings, which conveys speed, four heads, which conveys those four generals. So... We have here Media Persia, and we have Greece, and we're told that Greece will conquer Media Persia. But now, more detail is given about Greece. What does it say in verse 9? Read with me. It says, Out of one of them came a little horn. So, out of one of the territories that Greece was divided into, it says that a little horn will arise, will emerge. And you'll remember that the little horn as we've talked the last few weeks, is a reference to what we commonly, popularly call the Antichrist. And what we established the last few weeks is the Antichrist is not this at the end of the age, at the end of time, singular individual, this political leader who's going to unite the whole world against Christians. Uh, what, biblically speaking, across the whole teaching of Scripture, the Antichrist is, is persons, who exist in every single generation, who oppose God's people, who persecute God's people, and distort the truth and introduce error. So here we have a little horn emerging from one of the territories that popped up underneath one of the generals, one of the kingdoms that came after Alexander the Great's time. So with Greece in mind, okay, with Greece in mind, that's where all this is happening, And with a specific detail of one of these territories in mind, it seems, though, here in this passage, that this little horn is a specific person. Because we're talking about a specific person in a specific territory in this specific kingdom. 
It seems like God is foretelling of a person who will be an installment in this pattern, a specific individual who embodies this antichrist persona, which will exist forevermore. So let's find out more about this specific individual in verse 9. It says this, which grew exceedingly great. This little horn grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And so as we continue through this description of this little horn, it's going to be apparent, it's going to be obvious that this person is the famous Antiochus Epiphanes IV of the Seleucid Empire. He led successful campaigns in the direction of Egypt, that's south, towards uh, two territories called Armenia and Parthia, that's in the east. And then lastly, he marched into Jerusalem in 167 B.C., so the things that the activity of Antiochus Epiphanes seems to correspond to exactly what is said here in verse 9 about the little horn. And now we're going to find out even more about Antiochus Epiphanes and the wickedness of his activity. Keep going in verse 10. It says this, It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them. This describes symbolically the atrocious things Antiochus Epiphanes did to the Jewish people. And the clue we get that this is, a, this is the Jewish people that uh, is referred to here who is trampled on and thrown to the ground is this star, this celestial imagery. This is a common way to refer to God's people, Israel, throughout the Old Testament. You remember Joseph's dream, right? Joseph has a dream of the sun and the moon and stars bowing down to him, his brothers, and who, who do his brothers become? The 12 tribes of Israel. So this is a common way to refer to the, the people of Israel. So here we even see Antiochus Epiphanes is predicted to uh, atrociously persecute the Jewish people. Look at verse 11. We keep on going. It says, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. That's a reference to the king of Israel. So he even seems to rise to the level of king of Israel. And then verse 12, and a host will be given over to it, to the little horn, together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So not only are the Jewish people in this time period, in 167 to 164 BC, so this is you know, written in uh, 650, I believe, around there. So this is predicting hundreds of years later what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is not only are the Jewish people going to be persecuted underneath this man, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, but he is going to trample their temple, and he's going to ban their worship. See, what happened here, we know historically, here's what happens. Antiochus Epiphanes walks into the temple, he plunders its goods, he walks into the Holy of Holies and sets up his own altar to Zeus and sacrifices a sacrifice to Zeus. He kills the high priest and he installs one who bribed him and then he outlawed the worship of God. This is what he did during his time as he marched into Jerusalem in 167 B.C. to 164 B.C. And now we're given more detail. Look at verses 24 and 25. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction, shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. 
By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, likely a inference, a referral to that bribe he took. And in his own mind, listen here, in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He, in his own mind, will think that he has become great. This is a reference to this title, Epiphanes. That's not part of his actual name. It's a title he adopted. The word Epiphanes means God manifest. So literally, his name means Antiochus, God among you the fourth. So this man thinks he's God. So truly this man, he fits the profile of the little horn, the Antichrist we've been studying for the last few weeks. He persecutes God's people and he introduces deceit and error. But something else we need to see is that this man, even with all the skill and the intellect and the strategy, the prominence that he had, even with all of that said, he is actually only a puppet. Look at verse 24 again with me. I skipped over it quickly because I didn't want to let out of the bag, but I'll do that now. It says in verse 24, his power shall become great, but not by his own power. So everything Antiochus Epiphanes is doing is energized by somebody else, is empowered by somebody else. We've seen this before. Again, the little horn, the fourth kingdom, that that fourth kingdom we talked about, the accumulation of all the people throughout all time who oppose God and his people, we've established and seen that they are allied with Satan, that they are allied with the dragon. They might not know it. It might be totally unaware to them that that's what's taking place, but that is the reality. And we see this all throughout the Bible. I just want to show you that this is actually a biblical theology, that this should be a part of our uh, worldview, a part of our conception of how things work in the world. In Ezekiel 28, uh, Ezekiel is told to lament and make an oracle against the king of Tyre, this uh, you know, old kingdom in the Old Testament. It says this in chapter 28, Ezekiel 28. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am God, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man, and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. So this, this king of Tyre thinks himself to be like God, equal to God. But then look how he's described just a few, a few verses later. Chapter 28, 11 through 16, it says this. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lament, a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian chair, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now that's not describing the king of Tyre because <laughs> he's just a man, a mortal man. This is describing something far more ancient far more insidious. It seems like the original rebellion of Satan at the beginning 
is collapsed into the activity of the king of Tyre. His claims to be God, his rebellion, his opposition against God is integrated with this original rebellion of the great dragon, the serpent. Look at Isaiah 14. The same thing happens with the king of Babylon. Look, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. But he's talking about the king of Babylon here. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will send to heaven above the stars of God. I'll set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. In the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Again, the king's rebellion is swallowed up in Satan's rebellion. So I just want you to see that this little horn exists throughout all time and is energized by Satan so much so that the biblical authors seem to collapse their activity, their claims, their reverence and blasphemy, their activity into Satan's great rebellion. Now, let me just remind you, though, who the Antichrist is. It is kings and leaders throughout time, but the New Testament tells us who else is it. In its most basic, everyday form, it's those who do not profess Jesus to be the Christ and Jesus to be God. In other words, it does not take much to be allied with the dragon. It does not take much to be a part of his schemes without even knowing it. So listen, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're investigating, if you're curious, I'm so glad you're here, but you have to realize this. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There's no sitting on the fence and not picking a side. You're either all in with Jesus or you're all in with a great rebel. And that's the way it is. That's the story of the ages, this battle between good and evil that rages on. And listen, I know some of you here might think this is just silly talk. Like, who believes this stuff? This is just like folklore. This is, uh, you know, scary movies, horror films. Like, this, this is silly. Why believe this, right? Well, let me ask you a question. When you see injustice, when you see great atrocities, when you stare at evil in the face, do you have a moral system that can explain that? Do you have a moral framework that can make sense of that? When you see ethnic cleansings, when you see uh, poverty and starvation, when you see warlords being completely unjust, you know, we're sheltered from a lot of these atrocious things here, but globally and historically, when you see great evil occurring, how do you explain that? It's not just bad philosophy. It's not just bad thinking, wrong thinking. It's not just uh, archaic societies who aren't modernized. There's something far more insidious operating behind these things. And that's always been the case. Do you have a moral system to make sense of evil that you stare at and look at that's disturbing and that's unsettling? Do you have an explanation for that? Because you need one to make sense of it. Or you're just living in fantasy. Uh, Andrew Del Banco is an author I like. He's not even a Christian, but he at least is honest. He at least uh, uh, observe what's, observes what's happening in the world and, and makes some observations. And in this is a book he calls the de- it's a, a book called The Death of Satan. And he writes how our culture, our modern culture, has just erased this reality of evil, Satan, demons. And he says we need to keep it. We need to keep it because it helps. Here's what he says. If you think this is all silly, listen to somebody who knows what they're talking about a little bit. He says, we live in the most brutal century in human history. But instead of stepping forward to take the credit, the devil has rendered himself invisible. The very notion of evil seems incompatible with modern life, from which the ideas of transgression 
and the accountable self are fast receding. Yet despite this loss of old words and moral concepts, Satan, sin, evil, without those things, we cannot do without some conceptual means for thinking about the universal human experience of cruelty and pain. You need an explanation for evil. You need some, some sort of moral, ethical system that can make sense of just the atrocious things that we witness. And the reality is there is something insidious at play. There is a great enemy, a great schemer, an enemy who's at work. Uh, just to remind you, though, it's insidious. That means it's not going to be obvious. And so we taught. I mean, my, my goal here is to teach, 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 and then apply. So here's the application part. Here's why this matters in your day-to-day life. You might think to yourself, how does this actually work? You know, this scheming, this insidious play. How does this actually play out? I want to give you three New Testament references that show us how exactly this plays out. And I want to illustrate each one of those things by a quote from the Screwtape Letters, which is a book by C.S. Lewis, this fictional tale of uh, an uncle, mentor, demon, who's writing letters to his nephew, demon, who's been assigned to a Christian. All right? So how does this play out for believers? I want you to listen here. This is so important. This is how it works Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. If you're a believer, listen to this. This is how you fall into the trap. It says, be angry and do not sin, which means it's okay to be angry sometimes. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but be angry and do not sin. So when do we cross that threshold into inappropriate anger, sinful anger? When does it become unrighteous anger? Look, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's when you're angry for far too long. It's when you're angry to the point where you start resenting others and you have a chip on your shoulder and you need to justify yourself and you become a victim and you become cynical and skeptical of everybody else and cause division. See, anger for a time is fine, but not forever. But when you allow yourself to be angry without limitation, without restraint, only for a time, that's the enemy's hook. That's the enemy's foothold in your life. That's when you are susceptible to him because he wants you to have that shape on your shoulder. He wants you to have to justify yourself and be a victim because that means that you're forgetting the gospel, that you're already justified, that you're not a victim, you're a conqueror. This is what the enemy wants you to do. He wants you to forget the gospel and he wants you to be ongoingly angry. Here's what it says in Screwtape Letters. Uh, screw tape writing to Wormwood. He says, it is funny how mortals picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. The enemy wants you to not know the truth. The enemy wants you to forget the gospel. The enemy wants you to justify yourself. The enemy wants you to continue being angry. So if you're a believer, you know that you're in the trap. You know that something insidious is at play and you are caught in it if, if you're resisting truth and you're not changing, and you're not repenting, and you're not trusting, if you're just going on and on and on endlessly justifying yourself, and if there's division, cynicism, and resentment in all of your relationships, that's how you know that you're in the trap. For unbelievers, though, here's how it works for you. I have two references. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins and what in 
which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You are following the course of this world that is governed by the prince of the power of the air. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might not worship the dragon, but you are building your life on the faulty things he wants you to build your life on. You are just caught in the current and you're not resisting and you're not thinking. He wants you to build your life on faulty things like self-trust, like half-truths, like obsession with what others think about you and obsession with, with fear and what might happen and trying to be control of your life. He wants you to just be caught up in how things are without question. Here's, a, here's another quote from Screw Tape Letters. It says, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. See, the enemy just wants to put a pacifier in your mouth and pacify you, so you just keep on going and accept the status quo. So you know that you're in the trap. If you're an unbeliever here, you're, quite, you know, you're interested and you're seeking, you know that you're actually in the enemy's trap if you never experience contradiction. If you're just going with it and you never have to change. You haven't, that means you haven't brought Jesus, his truth, his claims deep enough into your life to actually challenge you and contradict you and cause you to think, wait, there's a different way than how things are. Lastly, Another one for unbelievers here, Matthew 12. It says this, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last day of that person is worse than the first. So will it be with this evil generation. What Jesus is teaching there in that teaching, it's sort of this uh, kind of, parable, if you will, is if your life is a train wreck and you're just a mess, that might be because there's this oppression involvement from the enemy in your life. And once he's done his, his work and everything's a wreck and he leaves and he comes back to find how things are going and how you're doing, you might have cleaned up your life a little bit. You might be doing pretty good. You might be, you know, have things in order. You might be really responsible. You might have this air of moral superiority that you did it, that you have what it takes, that you cleaned up your life. And this is teaching, that's the most dangerous place to be. Not the train wreck, not the mess, not out of control chaos. No, that's not the dangerous place to be. The most dangerous place to be is in a place of self-trust where you think you did it and you take the credit and you think you're better than others. That makes you more susceptible than when life's out of control. Because at least there, you might come to your senses. At least there, you might be willing to listen. But when you've done it, and when you're capable, and when you trust yourself, you don't have an ear to hear. Screwtape says this to his nephew. He says, if you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. A cleaned up person who's just morally doing enough, who's cleaned up their act, they're no better than somebody who's a train wreck. That's how this works. It's very insidious. It's very subtle. But we're called to know, and we're called to be informed.
So this battle between good and evil, it is insidious. But secondly, I want you to see that it is timeless. So Antiochus Epiphanes, they've been warned. He's this puppet. He shows us that this is how it's going to be throughout all time. But his activity, his campaign against God's enemies is actually this just one act in this greater cosmic campaign. Uh, I'll read a few phrases here of what's been said about his activity. It says this, His greatness grows, remember, to the host of heaven, and he throws some of the host of some of the stars to the ground. He becomes as great as the prince of the host, and later it says that he shall rise up against the prince of princes. And like I said, this all is a referral to the Jewish people, God's people, But also, this is very heavenly language, cosmic language. So it seems as if Antiochus Epiphanes' activity against the Jewish people, his assault against God's people, is actually also at the same time an assault against heaven itself, against God himself, which means that his one act is just one act in this cosmic battle between good and evil. And this is confirmed as we keep on reading in, verse, in chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. It says this, I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to the rightful place. So on one hand, this refers directly to Antiochus' ban of the evening and morning sacrifices in the temple. So in the Hebrew language here in this chapter, the focus is on the number of sacrifices. So this 2,300 sacrifices, which takes place every evening and every morning, actually then covers a span of 1,150 days, a little bit over three years. And interestingly, this pretty much approximately lines up with the persecution of God's people from 167 B.C. to 164 B.C. So there's this immediate fulfillment of this. This number is talking about what's, what approximately is going to happen, but again, this, is, this has a fuller interpretation, a, a, a greater meaning. This, this uh, 2,300 evening and morning sacrifice, this 1,150 days, I believe is a reference to all of church history until Jesus returns. What this is trying to show us is this battle that's raging. It's not just this one scene with Antiochus Epiphanes. This is our reality, and it's timeless. So now I'm going to make the case here for a very contested and debated interpretation that this number, uh, 1,150 days, which elsewhere in the Bible is referred to as time, times and half a time, or three and a half years, or three and a half days, or 1,290 days elsewhere, is all talking about the same era of time, the same thing, the moment from when Jesus ascends to heaven to when he returns. So you can pray for me because I got my work cut out for me. I'm going to convince you though, I think. So let's get into it. I want to show you that this is actually the right way to understand it, that this, is the, that this is talking about a timeless battle between good and evil. Look what it says uh, uh, in verses, chapter, chapter 7, verse 25 through 27. Talking about the little horn and talking about that kingdom that opposes God throughout all time, it says this. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. Now listen, he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, 
times and half a time. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So the idea we see here is that there's going to be persecution, there's going to be opposition up to a certain point, and then there will be restoration. That's what we saw in chapter 8. That same theme, what I just said, that same process is what we see in chapter 8. There's going to be persecution and opposition until God stops it and then restores all things. It's said of the temple, he's going to restore the sanctuary in chapter 8. Here it says he's going to uh, introduce this kingdom that shall last forever after persecution, but it's going to take place during a time, times, and half a time. Now, if you want to add that up, time is one, times is two, and half a time is half of one. So all that adds up to three and a half. So this number three and a half here, and I want to keep reading. We're at chapter 9, 26 and 27. We're going to get to this either next week or the week after. I'm not going to explain everything here. Hold your horses. But I want to get to the end and show you there's some consistency here across Daniel. Chapter 9, 26 and 27. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Or in other words, seven days. All right, so this strong covenant will be initiated. It will initiate a period of time that's symbolically referenced as seven days or one week. Now look what happens next. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So what's half of seven? Three and a half. We see the number three and a half here again. That's what's going to happen in the first part of the week. Now it's going to happen in the second part of the week. And on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So on the second half of this week, this other, this three and a half day period, if you will, what's going to happen? Persecution, opposition, until God restores all things and puts an end to it. The same thing is happening during these time periods. This 1,150 days, time, times, and a half a time, three and a half days, the same thing's happening during them all, okay? So what I want you to see is there's some real consistency and cogency to Daniel's vision here. He's not trying to trick us. God's not trying to trick us. He's trying to be actually very clear about expectations and what's to come. This battle between good and evil is going to rage on and on. It is timeless. And so I think this refers to when Jesus ascends and when he returns. That is this time, times, and a half time, three and a half day period, however you want to say, 1,150 days. I want to go ahead and persuade you even more now by seeing how the book of Revelation talks about this and how the book of Revelation uses these same numbers and same ideas to talk about the same reality. And just so you know, the book of Revelation is the sequel to Daniel. Daniel is given these visions, these expectations for the future, what's going to happen to God's people throughout time. And then John, he picks up that same revelation and continues it on and adds more detail and fills in the blanks and makes it more clear. So Daniel and John, they're their counterpart counterparts to each other. Uh, You can see this a a number of times, even in chapter 8, chapter 12 in the book of Daniel. It says that Daniel writes this down on a scroll and he's to seal it and roll it up. And in the book of Revelation, that scroll is picked up and it has seven seals on it. And there's only one who's worthy to open the scroll. It's the lamb who was slain, which means that Jesus, 
at the right hand of the Father as the risen King over the universe is presiding over all the events of history that Daniel foretold. He's the one opening the scroll that Daniel wrote down. But I want to show you now that, that, that what Daniel is talking about here is what John talks about. Go to Revelation 11, verse 3. It says this, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, which I think is the church, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So, 1,260 days is more closer to three and a half years. 1,150 days from Daniel chapter 8, it's not quite three and a half years. But remember, biblically, in Hebrew numerology, numbers are never meant to be seen as exact. They're used loosely. They're used approximately. So approximately, these numbers correspond to one another. So this period of time, it says the church is going to be faithful witnesses yet clothed in sackcloth. Faithful witnesses while mourning and while being persecuted and while being opposed. And it keeps going in chapter 11. It says this, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets, the church, have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half day period, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood upon their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. So what's it saying here? It's using the same number, the same measure of time repeatedly. During this 1,260 days, during this three-and-a-half-day period, the church will be faithful witnesses who are persecuted, even killed. But at the end of that three-and-a-half-day period, what's going to happen? God's going to put an end to it. He's going to come and return, and they're going to be resurrected, and all are going to be judged. And again, we see this in Revelation 12. Go there with me. Revelation 12, it starts, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it starts with this imagery of the sun moon and stars uh, that is associated with this woman. And what did I say before about the sun, moon, and stars? What does that represent? It represents the people of Israel. Remember Joseph's dream, his mom and dad, the sun and the moon, the stars, his brothers, which becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. So this vision starts with this woman who represents Israel, but then it morphs into this woman who has a son, which I think is Mary and then Christ. But then in verse 6, chapter 12, verse 6, this woman is not just Mary anymore, not just Israel anymore, but becomes somebody else. Look at it says in verse 6. It says, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days or three and a half years. So it seems again, this pattern is repeating itself. The church will be in the wilderness, but nourished. We'll be persecuted, but preserved by God until he returns. And then look again as we keep on going, chapter 12, 13, and 14. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. We saw that in Daniel chapter 7, that same phrase. So all this to say, I'm just trying to convince you, that all this to say, reading this kind of literature does not have to be confusing. 
God has deposited uh, repetition in our Bibles. And all we need to do is cross-reference and see that, oh, they're talking about the same thing, and this process is very observable by us. The church, you and I, throughout all time, are going to be part of this battle that's raging between good and evil. It's going to take place during 1,150 days, or 1,260 days, or time, times, and half a time, or three and a half days, all the same thing, but Jesus will return, and he'll put an end to all of it. That's teaching. <laughs> Application. Why should this matter? Where does this meet us in our lives? Here's what this means. If all this is true, if all this is true, that means that we are in this now. This battle between good and evil, we're caught up in it now. Let that reality sink in. And if you don't, if this is not a part of your concept of the world, if you don't have an appreciation for this reality, then when things are hard, and they're going to be hard because we're told they're going to be hard, when things are hard, you will be a career victim as a Christian. You will be a cynic all the time. You will look for shortcuts for relief because what's happening? It's hard and you didn't expect that. But this is the expectation, and this is the reality. And so if you don't let this reality sink in, you will complain when you're ridiculed. You'll complain when you're misunderstood. You will grieve the loss of cultural power. You will seek to relieve the difficulty through expedient measures like politics and like retreating from the culture. That's what's going to happen if you don't have this as a part of your framework for life. This is the reality. It's a great battle between good and evil, and we're caught up in it. But if this reality does set in, okay, if you take this and run with it and are bolstered by it, then you can be a remarkable person. I'm serious. You can be like otherworldly because life's going to be hard, but you're going to be triumphant. You will suffer, but you'll be able to give thanks. You will experience loss but you'll be grateful. You will be weak, yet you will be strong. Here's what Peter tells the exiles who he's writing to in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, for to this you have been called. Here's the reality. Here's your expectation. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. That means what happened to Jesus is what's going to happen to us. Our expectation should be how Jesus was treated. We should expect nothing less th than that for ourselves. That's the reality, and we should accept it and be okay with it and not complain and not push it away and not grumble, not become cynical. Here's what happens in the early church. The apostles who understood this, it says that when they were whipped and they were beaten for preaching the gospel in the synagogues, they were released and it says they went away rejoicing because they were able to share in the, in the fellowship of sufferings of their Christ. Let me ask you another question. Do you know where the title Christian comes from? We didn't make it up. It wasn't our idea. It wasn't the original disciples' idea. It was actually a derogatory term that was assigned to them. See, in Acts chapter 11, the disciples are in Antioch and it says great persecution was arising and those who were persecuting them, those who were observing them, began calling them Christians. The word Christian means little Christ. They're saying, oh, you guys look so much like Jesus. What a compliment. How amazing is that? Yeah, we're going to follow in his steps and be a part of the story that he's writing and not feel sorry for ourselves. 
and not grow weary in doing good and not give up. So here's Jesus' model. Do you want to know? All right, so I'm talking like we're in a battle. We're in this great battle between good and evil. What's your weapons for warfare? What has Jesus equipped you with in order to take part in this fight? And that's an exhaustive answer. I'm not going to be able to give everything. But I'll give you an answer from 1 Peter. Here's what our weapons of warfare are. Chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. You know who that sounds a lot like? Jesus in his last dying breaths. Father, forgive them for they not know what they do. That's how we fight the battle. Radical love for our enemies. Chapter 419. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What's our weapon for warfare? We entrust ourselves to a God who knows better than us. We entrust ourselves to a God who's not surprised by anything. We entrust ourselves to our God, our Father, who is wise. Who Everything that's happening in all of history was his idea. Lastly, one last weapon here. Chapter 4, 7 through 9. Here's how we take part in this great battle. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another. This is surprising. This is not war language. This is not battle language, but this is what we're equipped with. So what are we called to do? How do we respond to the reality that we're caught up in this great cosmic battle? We pray like we mean it. We love sincerely and deeply and radically. And what else? We show radical hospitality. That's the kind of people Jesus is making and shaping and forming. And when the outside world sees this happening, they're stunned. And they drop their weapons and they come and join. They defect from the darkness to the light. That's how we win and advance in this battle. Radical prayer, love, and hospitality to one another in this otherworldly human society and community called the church. So this battle between good and evil, it's insidious, it's timeless. I want you also to know, lastly, it's already over. It's already over. You know, when I uh, asked Rebecca to marry me a long time ago, I had this great plan. I, I, you know, I had all our loved ones write letters, and she was going to, I like placed them along a path, and she opened up one by one on the way to where I was kneeling, and I wasn't nervous at all. I was not nervous. I was only excited. Do you want to know why I was excited? Because I, I knew the answer. I knew what she was going to say. It was over before it began. In the same way, why can we now live with confidence? Why can we now live with this, I'm a more than a conqueror but through him who loved me? How can we march forward triumphantly? Because we know the end before it began. Because we know exactly what the end holds for us. We can be confident. Here's the end. Chapter 825, Daniel 825. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and by his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Now, if you remember, all the way back in Daniel chapter 2, 
Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, is given this vision of this massive statue, which talks about all the kingdoms that he's in and then after him. And at its feet, it says this. What happens to that statue? Remember? It says, a stone cut by no human hand smashes into that statue and demolishes it. And what is that a reference to, class? That is Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, his victory over sin, his victory over death, his victory over all who oppose him. It's over before it began. And when Jesus dies, he initiates something. He initiates freedom. He initiates forgiveness. He he initiates new life for us. And you know what's going to happen? He's going to finish what he has started. When he returns, he will bring it all to a close. So here's what this means. The enemy, he's already going down to the mat. The death blow, the uppercut, it's already been given. It's already been rendered. It's already met him right in the face. And he's going down. He's going down swinging, but he knows he's going to hit the mat. Friends, the battle between good and evil, it's already over. So what does this confident, victorious life look like? What does it look like to be more than a conqueror? One last reference in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10. Here's, I think, what it looks like to live with confidence in light of this. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here we go. Here's what this means. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. If this is true, if Jesus has died an atoning death in our place, do you know what that means? That God the Father, he feels only love for you. No anger, no wrath, no impatience. He's not flustered. He's not disappointed. Jesus has purchased God's unconditional love for you. And so you draw near with confidence now before your God all of the time. In Revelation 12, you know what it says? That when Jesus died, our great accuser, the dragon, was cast out of heaven to never return, which means Before God in heaven, the enemy is not coming and saying, you see, Joey, he says he loves you, but he's actually pretty unfaithful. You see, this person, they they go to church on Sundays, but look what they look like during the week. He has no more presence before the Father because he's been cast down out of his standing. So we do what now? What does a confident, victorious life look like? We draw near with true heart full assurance of faith, nothing between God and us but love. You want to know, (laughs) let me just say this, the enemy does not win when you sin because God knows that's what's going to (laughs) happen. He knows who he's committing to. The enemy does not win when you mess up. The enemy wins when you let your mess up get between you and God and become embarrassed and distant and cold towards him. But listen, that's only on your end, not on his end. Your father who loves you is never going to go cold, never never shudder, never pull back from you. His heart is always open to you. The enemy wants you not to believe that. 
The truth is, and we can bank on it by the blood of Jesus, that God loves us. So, victorious life looks like drawing near with full assurance. Then it says what in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 10? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without waving, for he who promised is faithful. Look, we're not going to win, and I'm not going to arrive to the end, and you're not going to arrive to the end because we had it in us, because we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps now, we are going to make it to the end because he who promised is faithful. So here's what you got to do. All you got to do is just cling. Just cling to him. He will carry you. He will pull you through. Lastly, this is awesome. Here's what the victorious life looks like. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is drawing near where every tear will be wiped away, sadness will be no more, death, sin, thrown into the fire, gone forever. That day is drawing near. And do you know how you take that concept and stuff it into your life so that it actually affects you? Gathering together here on Sundays and throughout the week, sharing life with one another, because I don't know about you, but I can't do it alone. I need someone to be strong for me when I am weak. I need someone to bless me when I feel unblessed. That's Jesus' vision for us. That's the confident, triumphant life. We gather together, stir up one another to love and good deeds, because we believe that day is drawing near. Where this battle, we fully and finally end it at last. Let's pray. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.